Hello from Austin and Philly. Welcome to episode 162 of the National Security Law Podcast. It's midday on Wednesday, April 8th, 2020. Brought to you by the Strauss Center at the University of Texas. I'm Bobby Chesney. I'm Steve Vladek, and we are doing this live to a, a uh, online audience of debatable size through the University of Pennsylvania's National Security Law Society. Go Penn. Thanks for hosting us. Uh, it's the... Uh, what is it, the National Security Law Society? That's great. We are excited to have, uh, it looks like about 20 uh, Penn Law students on the line, and we've got them all muted, but I assure you that if we weren't muting them, it would be loud, raucous cheering, or let's just assume, Steve, that that's exactly what would be happening. Or loud, raucous Zoom bombing. Or uh, it's Philly, maybe they're throwing batteries at us. Um, well, that's true, that is true, or, or snowballs, or, you know, Whatever else, snowballs, uh, concealing batteries. Uh, indeed, that is indeed the Philly way. I mean, you know, was, what, that, was that a Phillies thing or was that an Eagles thing when that went down? What's the difference? A Phillies thing versus oh a, oh, <laughs> oh oh I'm sorry. I thought I said is that a Philly thing? I I believe it was Eagles fans. Although you know, back in the day when the Phillies and the Eagles shared the vet, the vet was like the one professional stadium in the United States that had its own jail. Um, because, you know, only Philadelphia sports fans required their own jail. That's pretty awesome. I like that. Well, um, we've got a ton to talk about, but we also want to have some Q&A with the students at the end. What are some of our topics? We've got, uh, we've got a Gitmo habeas ruling. It's like, throw, it's not Thursday yet, but it feels like a throwback Thursday. We have a, a real deal. What's the scope of detention authority? What's the evidence against the detainee? Uh, district court merits ruling in a Gitmo habeas case. Party like it's 2009. It really is unbelievable. So it's it's a fascinating one. It's uh, Saifullah Paracha, who's a name that uh, longtime listeners and those who fall, used to follow this area a lot will remember, because of course his uh, his son Uzair was inside the United States, and Uzair was was a major figure in some of the early material support litigation and prosecutions. Uh, so we, we have an answer, and uh, the government won. We'll talk about the ins and outs on that one. Um, turning to the world of pandemia that we now all live in, what have we got there? So I think the, the two most interesting legal developments, one is um, this morning, finally, uh, the government actually used the Defense Production Act overtly to do something, uh, a half-billion-dollar <laughs> contract between the Department of Health and Human Services um, and uh, the uh, GM, uh, for the production of ventilators. Um, and my understanding, Bobby, is that there are going to be 30,000 ventilators that should be uh, able to replenish the national stockpile by the end of August. So, great. Uh, uh, this is the sort of thing we should have seen months ago. Uh, however, um, I won't complain about any actual action at this point other than to say, where was this in the past? All right, we'll talk about the Defense Production Act again. We also, uh, knew uh, this? We, we also have a major ruling from our neck of the woods, the Fifth Circuit yesterday, um, by a two to one vote issued a writ of mandamus in the not very helpfully named In Ray Abbott case. Um, the net effect of which is basically to keep in place, at least for the moment, Texas's ban on uh, most abortions uh, for the duration of the current uh, uh, public health crisis. Um, we're not really going to get into the sort of the weeds of the abortion side of that, Bobby. Rather, the reasoning deployed by the majority, I think, is a really important bellwether for the upcoming uh, round of litigations that we're going to see about what standard of review court should be using to assess how these pandemic-driven public health measures interfere with civil liberties. 
All right, so that'll be super interesting. And then we'll pivot from pandemia to Trump. Why, why, why are you setting such high expectations? <laughs> How do you mean? That'll be super interesting. What if it's not? What if it's boring? Oh, right, right, right. Yeah, that, if, we, if we can make our way through that uh, slog of boredom, we'll turn our attention to Trumplandia, where, uh, as is often the case, there, there be changing personnel all over the place. <laughs> Um, this one's, this is a, this week has been, uh, entertaining and, and stunning, even by the standards of the past two years. Uh, Modley is out. Uh, just Modley, we hardly knew ye. That is so worthy as a show title. Modley, we hardly knew ye. I, I still prefer, I still prefer the pen P-E-N-N is mightier than the sword. That's true. Sure, maybe we can squeeze them both in somehow. Maybe, maybe, um, maybe we can start soliciting people in the chat box to give us show title ideas. Yeah, you, you guys can vote in the chat box on that. Um, so Mod leaves out, and then so too is the Inspector General of the Intelligence Community, and he ain't the only Inspector General who's out. Um, so we'll talk about personnel developments in Trumplandia. Any other Trumplandia topics that are sufficiently related to national security law. Maybe something will come to us. Something will happen while we're on. Uh, all right. Uh, maybe, maybe I'll say a really brief word about the Supreme Court's order um, late Monday with regard to the Wisconsin election, just because I think that also dovetails with, um, maybe that's more in the pandemic side, but just pandemically Trumpy stuff. Yeah, I think that does fit there because as, as you pointed out on Twitter, um, there's the, the, Entirely apart from the incredible importance of that case and its its outcome there in present times, we need to look ahead to where things would be uh, in the fall when the actual national election is taking place. Yep. Um, we've got a sequel or a further development, uh, this time from the FISC itself, on the Horowitz Report Part D, which we had last week discussed. This is about the, the Inspector General's report on the Woods procedures and failure to comply properly with them. The FISC is getting in on the action in an interesting way that, you know, we'll see what happens. We'll, we'll talk about that. That's the, the recent order in in-ray accuracy concerns regarding FBI matters submitted to the FISC. That is not the, the order you want to receive when you're on the government side, when it's captioned that way. And then I want to note also uh, a recent Judge Bates decision in a Computer Fraud and Abuse Act case uh, that's the culmination of a long-running ACLU lawsuit trying to clarify pre-enforcement, clarify the scope of the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act. It's a, it's a very important ruling, I think. Um, might, might issue a note along the way about some uh, new organizational structures, or I should say existing structures that are now being formalized more in the, uh, the interagency process for reviewing certain national security implications uh, in the telecom sector when there are transactions there. And then do you have anything else before we go to Q and A? Uh, no. That ought to do it, I guess. And then for frivolity, what have we got? Uh, well, we have episode four of Westworld. Yes. The, the mother of all exiles. Uh, is, this, I, yeah. is that sort of a gesture towards the mother of all of the drag mother of dragons? Is that? I thought I had saw I thought I saw somewhere something somewhere that there was like there was another show it was an homage to um, that actually much mm -hmm. of the episodes an homage to I mean you know the, these guys they're so much smarter and more creative than I could ever even dream about being um, I just you know I, I I'm sure they've come up I'm, I'm sure there are like 37 levels of sophistication to this and I'm at like level two 
we, we will, in the frivolity segment, plumb at least to the second level then <laughs> in the multi-level sophistication cake that is Westworld. All right, uh, but no spoilers until we get to the end. Um, so what should we start with, Paracha? Yeah, let's go, let's go to Gitmo. Go Gitmo. <laughs> go to Gitmo. So, Bobby, uh, so, so this actually, this ruling is actually pretty old, but the it was only released in a redacted and publicly available version right at the end of March, um, and it only I think got noticed late last week. And this is what a hundred and twenty-seven page ruling from Judge Paul Friedman, um, the first conclusive resolution of the merits of the detainee habeas case. Um, how is it possible that it took us, you know, eighteen years to get this case to its first ruling? why both parties requested years and years and years and years, and I can go on like this for quite a while, <laughs> both sides, including Paracha, yeah. asked for delay extensively. So uh, it looks at, at first blush, as many people's reactions reflected, it sounds preposterous. Like what kind of cartoonishly ridiculous denial of justice is it not to rule for so long? But as the procedural posture recap in the opinion documents, and then those of us who observed the case understood, um, there were perfectly understandable reasons. Uh, if you if you remove the the various stays of litigation, including the what was it a full five or six years that uh, Paracha just did not want to get to the merits on this because he was reconsidering who he wanted to represent him, considering what his strategy was going to be, um, and and I'm not saying it's good or bad that either side was seeking stays along the way, but but it's basically a red herring to focus on the passage of time, in my opinion. Oh. Oh, no, my, my point is not my point is not to affix blame for that, Bobby. My point is just to suggest that for folks who think all this stuff is behind us, that for for reasons that are not insidious, or at least not necessarily insidious, some of these cases are just now right seeing the light of day and being fully litigated for the first time. I don't mean that as a critique of what's happened before. I mean that as a I mean that as a critique of the information environment where there's nothing new under the sun because I actually think there's a lot new under this particular sun. Well, and I'll go, I'll go one better and say that anyone who thinks that even, even when we do get to the point where every last person who could get a merits ruling finally does have them. And by the way, almost all the remainders do. I don't know how many, if any, beyond Paracha haven't actually gone to the merits yet. I question. do know that there have been some detainees from the beginning. Now, I can't give you any specific citations, but there have always been detainees who don't want to be part of the habeas process and who don't want to come into court deny they had al-Qaeda ties, et cetera. There are some in that batch. In so event, I mean, um, I, I mean my, my, my sense, Bobby, is of the four, so there are 40 detainees still at Guantanamo, right? Paracha is one of 40. Um, and of those 40, what, uh, 12 are in some degree, shape, or form in the military commission system, right? Which leaves 20, 25 to 28 in the pure habeas um, um, side of the conversation. My sense is that so like, maybe like 15 to 20 of those have had habeas determinations and the others who haven't other than Paracha, it's because they've chosen not to, right? So it's, it's a minority, yeah. but not a, not, not a zero set. Right. So for the ones who've had it, who wanted to try to challenge the legality or the factual basis for their detention, it's pretty much running its course or has run its course, but that doesn't mean it's over. And as we've emphasized periodically on the show, um, changing circumstances with respect to the plausibility of continuing to contend that there is an ongoing state of armed conflict constantly threatens in every day these days even more threatens to set off a real serious wave second wave of habeas litigation on the merits raising the possibility that the law of war basis undergirding the detention has resolved itself 
And the National Defense Authorization Act for fiscal year 2012, which as the Paracha decision, as we'll note in a moment, uh, properly emphasizes is the leading or central statutory authority in combination with the 2001 AMF for describing who can be detained. It doesn't override that underlying need for there to be a state of armed conflict. In fact, it assumes that, that what scope of detention it is conferring is built on top of the existence of the armed conflict. And as the United States military footprint, especially the boots on the ground footprint, uh, reduces and reduces and reduces. And insofar as um, a particular organization as to whom a detainee at Gitmo is affiliated, either can be said to cease to exist or perhaps more plausibly to simply have been so, so few and far between in terms of the instances of violence as to call into question whether there really still is a state of armed conflict between that entity and the United States, um, the room for a new wave, uh, a, a fresh wave of litigation is, is out there. So, I mean, is it fair to say that the reason why this particular ruling matters is because um, we've moved, I mean, so, so let me sort of describe for briefly the, what, what I think of as the big takeaway from the ruling, and then I want, I, I want to make sure you and I agree that on what's important here. So, the big takeaway is that Judge Friedman holds that the government has met its factual and evidentiary burden um, to show that Paracha is detainable by providing um, a preponderance of the evidence, which is what the DC Circuit's case law requires, to show that Paracha provided, quote, substantial support, unquote, to the Taliban and Al Qaeda. And, you know, the reason why I reacted to this as a big deal, and I, I assume the reason why you did as well, is because um, up until very recently, um, there hadn't been a single case, right, where the ultimate uh, 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 judicial vindication or, or sustaining of a detainee's detention had been based on the substantial support prong, um, as opposed to on the conclusion that they were part of, that membership, um, the Taliban or Al-Qaeda. Um, and that this appears to be either the first or second time that a district court has held in a Gitmo detention case that someone could be detained under the AUMF plus NDAA um, without any showing of membership, just based solely on substantial support. I think that's fair. And, and so for those who aren't steeped in the weeds of what the substantive grounds for detention notionally are, as Steve described it, it's, it's two different prongs. And almost all the action these past two decades has been under the membership prong. And the membership prong, that it signifies uh, being subject to the direction and control of Al-Qaeda, the Taliban, or associated forces engaged in hostilities against the United States or its allies. Um, the membership prong fits more comfortably with the paradigm of detention that's undergirding all of this, the detention of enemy belligerents or combatants, where uh, the, the law of war, conventional perspective, at least in international armed conflict, and I would argue elsewhere as well, when you do have armed conflict, you are allowed to detain the members of the enemy armed force, the organized armed group that is the enemy. Um, and so that has its controversies, yes, but relatively speaking, and certainly for people like me, that's pretty straightforward. Um, but the U.S. government executive branch position all along has been, going back to the Bush administration, had been, um, members or non-members who are providing material support to the covered groups. That's much more controversial. Uh, I could go on for hours and have three quarters of a book written about some of the background law of war concepts that are relevant for a comparison's sake here. It's much more complicated than just some notion that, oh, non-members can't be detained. That, I don't think that's right. 
but it's definitely more controversial. And then Congress in the NDAA for fiscal year 2012, when Congress finally articulated an actual set of standards, it basically codified the executive branch model. Membership is one prong, substantial, or they, they you know, material support in the form of substantial support, uh, which I think is a distinction that's not doing it a ton of work. Um, support is deemed an, an independent basis. Here, the government was making the argument that Paracha was detainable either as a member of Al-Qaeda based on a functional assessment of the, the things he knowingly did for them, which is how a lot of the prior cases have smoothed over the distinction between independent support and membership. They've said things that look like support can be proof of functional membership. Um, but, but Friedman goes out of his way not to rely on that basis. And in fact, says early on in the opinion, I'm not reaching the membership test because I think here we've got a good case for support and that's enough. So, so it is really important as a clear, finally, a clear example of actually using that prong and letting that prong do the work. That said, I think, and I'm interested what you think of this, I think that because Congress clearly codified that as an available prong for detention, I don't think it's actually a very hard question that it's available. I think it's an interesting question whether it should be available, but I think it's legally available as a domestic law matter, I think fairly straightforwardly. Um, so I, I guess it depends on what it is, right? I mean, I, I certainly agree that in Section 1021B of the you know, fiscal year 2012 National Defense Authorization Act, Congress gave the government the power to detain a non-citizen based on substantial support to Al-Qaeda or the Taliban. I think the question is whether substantial support in that context has to be understood by reference to IHL or not, right? That is to say, you know, should we assume that Congress by substantial support meant something like DPH directly participating in hostilities? Or do we assume it meant something much broader along the lines of just pure material support, which Bobby under US law doesn't require any affirmative act of belligerency. Um, and, you know, I at least would want to interrogate a little further the notion that Congress um, had affirmatively departed from IHL in this context versus just use the term substantial support to incorporate non-membership theories of detention that are already recognized, you know, under the laws of war. The opinion has a lot of discussion of this very issue. It's a, it's a very good opinion. I mean, obviously, put <laughs> time to work on it. Uh, but uh, I, so I, I agree that that's an important question, but I don't think, I think we disagree on how to resolve it. I don't think it's a hard question. I think it's, I think it would be an easy opinion to write. And I think Friedman wrote it, that Congress intended to adopt the material support concept that it was currently in the process and for years had been in the process of using uh, in the uh, military commissions context and that all of it was inspired by the domestic statute. And indeed, there's a huge amount of debate about whether there is anything like a material support concept that exists anywhere within IHL. So I think it'd be a hard stretch to, to build in an assumption that Congress or to adopt an interpretation that the NDAA for fiscal year 2012's reference to it as a detention standard was meant to be anything other than a carryover of, of what had been going on. And, and what had been going on was a 2339B style material support type concept. I mean, even in cases, Bobby, where there was no belligerent act, I mean, this is, this is like, cause- you, Can you unpack what you mean by belligerent act in this context? So uh, someone can violate 2339B by writing a check. Right. Yes. And so, and right. so the, and I, assume and, and, you, 
handling money was among the things Paracha gets nailed for here. Among the things, but would you have? I mean, would you have thought this was a permissible uh, and correct result if the only thing that the government had against Paracha was handling money? Right. I mean, that, like that's if, so. This, if, he, if, if he's writing, so one of one of the main things on which his uh, detention is resting here is is moving money for uh, Khalid Sheikh Mohammed and Majid, Majid Khan. Um, we'll simplify the fact pattern, fact pattern and say he knowingly wrote a check and handed it to bin Laden saying, Al-Qaeda, here, here's a thousand dollars. Right. Uh, I don't think that's a hard case at all. For military detention. I, 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 for under the NDAA fiscal year 2012. But this goes back to where I'm but because you are assuming something that I don't think is self-evident, which is that insofar as the NDAA is inconsistent with international law, it overrides international law. Right. And, 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 and I'm not sure that that is a fair reading of the NDAA, and I'm not sure that that's, you know, in, so obvious as to be beyond sort of doubt in this litigation context. If by overriding international law, you mean whether it should be given, whether Congress should be given a f congressional intent to adopt a broader detention standard than IHL standing alone would have authorized, the idea that the courts aren't going to give effect to congressional intent to go broader because of the expansion, I guess is the same thing as saying that Congress is bound and cannot exceed whatever IHL at that moment is thought. That's not my argument. My argument is that... Okay, I'm not understanding it then. My, my argument is a charming Betsy argument, right? So the charming Betsy canon says that in general, yeah, in, right, in general, we assume that Congress passes statutes that are consistent with their obligations under international law. Congress can depart from those obligations, but it has to do so expressly. And, you know, Marty Lederman and I wrote like a... a 50,000 word pair of blog posts, right? Right when the NDAA was passed in December of 2011 about why we thought the NDAA had to be understood as being consistent with the laws of war, not intentionally departing from it. Here we are, right, eight years later, finally with a case that to me actually tees up this very question, which is should the substantial support prong of 1021B be read to incorporate the laws of war or be read to depart from them? And I just don't think it's obvious that the answer is the latter just because we already had a broad conception of material support. So I think it's crystal clear that Congress intended to adopt exactly the what I would call the regular U.S. domestic understanding of material support. I just don't think it's at all in doubt. But uh, let's assume that it's debatable and that therefore there's a potential charming Betsy type issue. Uh, I guess setting aside that as a predictive matter, I'm hardly confident that this Supreme Court would ultimately decide that that's going to have bite. Uh, we'll set that aside. They'd have to take a Guantanamo case first. Right. Indeed. Well, I would, I would love it if they would. I, I would love to see a Supreme Court engagement on this exact issue. It'd be wonderful. I, I think we both think it won't get out of the circuit and the circuit's going to uh, affirm here. But um, here's the thing, and I, I don't want to miss this. So I referenced earlier the complexity of this question. I, I feel now I, I want to say something about it in more detail because the premise that gives rise to the potential charming Betsy type issue here. This goes nowhere if it goes nowhere unless there's at least some pretty strong reason to believe that this application of material support as a concept for military detention is is contrary to or beyond boundaries that IHL creates. I don't think that is at all the case, and this is an area that's hotly contested amongst those who who work in the vineyards of LOAC slash international humanitarian law. Um, but suffice to say that. I think at least the following is clearly true. In an international armed conflict, there's no doubt at all that consistent with the fourth Geneva Convention, um, a belligerent can 
deprive of liberty, can't submit to or commit to security internment uh, on a recurring basis. Oh, that's good. Steve's sharing his screen. Awesome. Um, security internment is available. That's a different paradigm from combatant detention, but the fact or the functional outcome is, is much the same. The, the primary difference in practice uh, from from combatant detention being that combatant detention is automatically for the duration of hostility. Security internment is for such time as the imperative security threat uh, needs to be met in this way and must be uh, uh, revisited uh, on, a, on an ongoing and periodic basis. At various times, and again, I don't want to eat up a bunch of time going too far in the weeds on this uh, dimension, but whereas Gitmo has more or less been framed throughout the past two decades as a belligerent detention context, if we compare uh, detention in Afghanistan, which used to also be, and over time has been a much bigger location for detention under the same authorities, including, by the way, for uh, Saifullah Paracha, who originally spent his first, first 15 months in detention in theater in Afghanistan after presumably, uh, it, the, the, the opinion blocks out like where he was, he was clearly lured out of Pakistan. The, the blocked out language is pretty brief. It looks a lot like maybe it was India. That's what I think maybe it was, but maybe that's out there in the public record. Who knows? But he ends up being shifted over to Bagram Air Base. Over time in Afghanistan, um, the, the military ultimately kind of quietly, but functionally and practically did shift to more of a security internment model. In any event, my, my point being that it's not obvious you couldn't detain somebody for doing actions that are in aid of organized enemy armed groups, um, even under a straight up IAC type analysis. Things get murkier once you leave the IAC context and go into the NIAC, non-international armed conflict setting. But again, I think the, the idea that uh, IHL is imposing affirmative prohibitions in the NIAC setting is even harder to show. Um, so I guess, I guess if it comes down to it, I think there would and should be uh, a strong argument from the US government that what they've done in the uh, provision that Steve has highlighted on the screen share, um, the substantial support provision is compatible with IHL. Well, I, I mean, we're going to find out, and I suspect that the courts are going to agree with you. I just don't think it's as obvious. Um, one thing more we should say before moving on. So it, it appears that this issue may already actually be in the DC circuit. Um, so on March 5th, a three-judge panel of judges Griffith, Rao, and Randolph, oi, um, yeah. heard an argument in a case called Alhila versus Trump. Um, which I, I don't think we've seen the district court opinion in that case, or at least I haven't. But right. my understanding is that it raises a similar substantial support as an independent basis for detention question. And, and let me just say, um, I, I have no doubt that that panel um, is going to hold that substantial <laughs> support is perfectly fine. Uh, and that if anything, Judge Randolph will write a concurring opinion about why, you know, who cares about any of this international law stuff anyway. Um, if, uh, if the clerks are listening, come on. Cite this episode. We need, have we had a judicial site? I don't, I mean, I would hope not, but have we? I, I sure hope not. Yeah. Um, I think it's time. There was a time when it's thought weird to cite a blog, but that's behind us. How about, how about citing the podcast? How about not? Uh, all right. So anyway, so all this is to say that this is actually a pretty important development in Gitmo habeas land. One Bobby thinks is entirely appropriate when I think is sort of debatable, but you know, in, important in two respects. One, because it actually does move the law in a meaningful direction, at least moves the case law in a meaningful direction, but also too, I think reinforces how we really can't just forget about Guantanamo, that there's still important stuff going on there, stuff that's not just about these legacy cases, but that also could be setting important precedents going forward. Mm -hmm. 
All right, so right. pivoting to Pandemia, from Gitmo to Pandemia. Pandemia. Uh, all right, so we, we've been talking on this show repeatedly in recent weeks about how any formal invocation, and for the ones who are just listening, I'm doing you know air quotes around that, formal invocation of the Defense Production Act doesn't in any legal sense mean much unless and until there's some sort of actual action compelling a particular private sector entity to do something that wasn't otherwise going to happen. Um, so all the talk, I think we had had at least three prior moments of presidential touting of action under the DPA that meant nothing. It meant a lot rhetorically and optically. Four, four prior. Because we, uh, we, we, we had recorded, we recorded before the fourth one last Thursday about N95 uh, uh, respirators from um, uh, 3M. Right. Well, at least, and at least in that case, there was a specific company identified, and but again, it was it was really just a sort of an optical illusion. There was a there was a uh, very loud description of having used the Defense Production Act to make uh, 3M do something. Let me find the order. I want. I'll but put it up on as the of yet, there has still, as far as I know, at least in the public record, no actual indicator of any actual agreement that followed from that as to what in particular 3M would do. And 3M's public statement following that order um, was very clear that they were already in all sorts of negotiations with the government. And this highlights something that I think is very uh, very important to understand, that the DPA can be used in the sense that it was used today to be the basis for a compulsory contract with the private sector entity, in this case today, GM, a $489.4 million contract to produce 30,000 ventilators to be delivered to the strategic national stockpile, which doesn't belong to us, we're told, but never mind that, uh, by the end of August 2020. It, it depends on who our is, Bobby. Well, that's what confused me about, uh, about the son-in-law's statement. Um, in any event, that's a real DPA action, and, and I applaud it, um, I think. I don't know if the details make that a good deal or a bad deal, but I appreciate seeing the thing used. The 3M action there may or may not be some not disclosed to the public contract action, but I sure haven't seen one yet. And that, but that didn't stop everyone from, from accepting that the president had used it. There is a sense in which he had used it. And I do want to be fair in acknowledging that the, the Defense Production Act has its direct usage as in the, three, the GM example. And then it has its uh, um, leveraging rhetorical bully pulpit kind of usage where you invoke it and you say, I'm going to use it. You may even say, I'm using it against you, 3M. And then it's not actually used, but the negotiations proceed differently than they would have otherwise proceeded. The company behaves differently than it would have otherwise behaved because of the threat that they might just get compelled to sign on to a certain contract. And, and actually, that's a real use. Now, was that actually what's been going on with 3M or anyone else who's been named in these otherwise purely notional prior Trump administration Defense Production Act uh, invocations? I don't know. Uh, maybe so. Um, but in any event, I think people need to be properly cynical about claims that the Defense Production Act is being used. So I, I agree. I mean, I think the, we should distinguish between two different uses of the DPA, right? There's Title I, which allows the government to basically jump in line when it comes to contracting. And I think that's, that's the 3M order, right? The 3M order is, you know, Does it? well, I mean, 
it's authorized if if in authorized fact it, but did they do it so if in fact the acting secretary of homeland security uses the authority the president referenced in the screen share i'm showing right now right that would be title one of the dpa that would be the government gets to go to the front of the line to buy a good you've already produced right. the gm order right is title three of the act this is um financial incentives to private industry to actually change their production model, their, their production system, in order to fulfill a mitigated shortage. And I think it's worth stressing, like, you know, the, the bottom line of the GM story, right, is 30,000 ventilators by the end of August. Um, apparently, there are other deals already in place to produce even more ventilators sooner, but it's still quite late, um, right? That, that, to me, the story is not that the administration is being tentative in its invocation of the DPA, because I do think that there's some value in letting some of this happen in negotiation behind the scenes. Absolutely. Right. To me, the story is that it's April fracking eighth. Right. <laughs> it's the it's the flaw that can't be remedied because you can't go back in time. This is this is something that would have been great to see in February when it was obvious this would be needed. That something like this would be needed, and that may have been news to some of these people. Bobby, no one. Bobby, nobody saw this coming. Oh right, you're right. No one knew. No one right. knew until. Hey, Steve, Newsflash, did you know that asymptomatic transmission is possible? You know well, I can, I can run for governor of Georgia. Um, so there's a, we, have, we have a question on the chat from Jake Weber. Uh, Jake asks, what are the potential negative consequences for utilizing the DPA in a more substantial way than it's currently being used? So I think it depends, Jake, on, on what you mean by negative. Um, you know, I think the, there are two uh, long-running historical concerns about the DPA. One is that it's government interference in the private sector. Um, although I've never found that um, especially convincing because it's not as if the government is nationalizing industry and it's not as if the, it's not as if these uh, companies aren't going to be paid um, whatever they're, you know, they can, they can negotiate for. It's just that the government gets to go first, um, right? GM, I, I don't think GM is taking a haircut on this vent, on the, the, the ventilator contract. Um, but, you know, I think the negative consequences perhaps are, um, more about crowding out other buyers, other purchasers, right? That, that giving priority to the federal government means that we're sending other people to the back of the line. And I guess to me, you know, as long as the act is being used responsibly, that's not a concern that really resonates with me. Although one could imagine hypotheticals, of course, where it could be abused. I do, th I, let me pile in on that because I think that's right, that if you stipulate a, well, a reasonably well-coordinated federal response where the federal government is overcoming the collective action problems of there being 50 states, in order to ensure that we're getting surges of relevant equipment into the most impacted areas at the right time, then having the federal government cut in line and drive production um, output into the national stockpile, then that's, ex that's exactly the result you want. Is that what we've got? I don't know. I think one, it's one correction. I want to correct one thing I said earlier, though, because here we are. We're, we're tagging them for this, this uh, August delivery date for the 30,000 ventilators. In fairness, it's a rolling delivery, and the, the announcement from Homeland, uh, Health and Human Services emphasizes that the first 6,000-plus are due to arrive as of June. And that, that is meaningful, albeit still too late. But nonetheless, that's going to be a meaningful contribution, one hopes. The interesting question here is um, – if there had been no Defense Production Act invocation, would this look any different? I don't know. Like what, and that's not a knowable thing, really. But one wonders whether the price, the speed, or the quantity, or indeed the involvement of the federal government, is much different than what would have happened anyways if the DPA had never been invoked. 
Um, let me just say, I think, but I do think this, dovet this dovetails with the stockpile question, right? Because part of the question is, what gaps are the, is the DPA filling? And I think part of the problem is that we're not entirely clear on that, right? Because of the, the inconsistent data we're getting out of the administration. Um, but Bobby, you know who would be a really good person to help make sure that the authorities are being used properly? Hmm. It's like you want somebody to, you know, it's like inspecting the goods. You want, you want somebody to inspect, but who? Maybe a general. Uh, I, maybe, maybe a general inspector. Steve, are you suggesting there's a role here for inspectors general in this process? I mean, I'll just say that, that, that this, I think this is a good segue into Trumplandia, right? Because um, I, I do want to talk a little bit about the Fifth Circuit decision, but I also think that this is part of the story yeah. about the response to the crisis, that part of why we have inspectors general is to ensure that these kinds of deals are actually being done above board, that these authorities are being used the way they're supposed to without fraud, without abuse, and without illegality. And I just think that like, you know, now's not exactly the time where I'd be feeling really good about sacking all of the relevant inspectors general. It's an interesting question. I guess uh, the funny thing is, so the Defense Production Act, I guess the Inspector General for Health and Human Services would be the, the relevant person for this GM order. Um, the real issue, of course, is the huge bailout funds that Glenn Fine was going to be over, overseen from an inspector general position. He's being replaced. Uh, and, of course, this comes hot on the heels of the inspector general of the intelligence community being booted out. Michael Atkinson. What is transparently. Wait, at 10 p.m. on a Friday. No, transparently uh, uh, retaliation for his compliance with federal law in his role in relation to some of the stuff that upsets Trump more than anything, the leak. Uh, well, yeah, I don't want to even go down. Into Wait, but the, Bobby, but Bobby, right, not the right word. Bobby, it's, Bobby, conservative media tells me that Atkinson was fired because of his responsibility for the FISA abuses. <laughs> well, Steve, I know you're an avid consumer of, of, of fringe media. And uh, I always want to encourage you not to be, because I think you'll be a happy person if you're not. Um, on the other hand, you know, you got to know what people are saying. So we could go on and on about the inspector generals being replaced in waves. Here's the thing. And, and this, you know, it's funny. We just in my common law class, we're, we're doing Myers and Humphrey's executor and, and Morris Morrison. and all the rest. Oh, wait, is Humphrey's executor still good law? Guess we'll find out soon, maybe, right? Yeah. Um, the, the bottom line is there, there's no argument, I think, no good argument that Trump acted illegally in exercising what the statute does enable expressly and what the constitution probably requires, which is that the president have the ability to replace these officials wielding executive power. Um, what's wrong is something that we've talked about in other contexts, like the pardon power and any number of other powers that are formally speaking within the president's grasp. That doesn't mean it's okay or that there isn't a harm to rule of law values that are, foundational when these powers are used in ways that either are or at least appear to be improper from a larger perspective to wit i mean uh removing people who are in a position to blow the whistle on other activity that is illegal and that's kind of the lens through which i look at these removals he had he absolutely had the power to do it um but it's a huge red flag at, at the larger picture where we're getting away from strict legalities and talking about larger policy concerns. I agree. And, and where I think the norms historically would have been that this would have engendered a lot of pushback, perhaps even from within the president's own party. But those are the very norms that we're increasingly learning are not actually that 
that useful in this administration. Um, well, I, this is a little bit out of, out of order, but while we're talking about removals, can we please, please, please talk about Thomas Modley? <laughs> oh, Icarus, you flew too close to the sun. Uh, so that wait, was is quick. It, wait, is, it, is this when we have the live, the live Hamilton sing along in the middle of our... Uh... I've got some line, I've got some Les Mis related lines to sing to you later when we get to our frivolity segment. Oh gosh. Uh, but oh, unlike John I Krasinski, can't I can't, I can't invite Lin-Manuel and the cast, the original cast of Hamilton to Why zoom not? on this session. To, Why can't you? Well, I, I don't want to show off. You're um, the associate dean of the University of Texas School of Law. You have immense power. I'm, I'm cloaked. Are you saying I'm cloaked in immense power? Cloaked in immense power, President Lincoln. Yes, um, all right. Daniel Day Lewis ish. Exactly. All right. So, um, so Modley. I'm so cloaked in immense power. <laughs> yes, that was a Lincoln reference. Okay. So, um, uh, Thomas Modley has been the acting secretary of the Navy since we should remind everybody the secretary of the Navy, Richard Spencer, was forced out for um, how he, uh, well, it's a matter of perspective, but to my mind, how he tried to protect the Navy from White House interference in the Eddie Gallagher case. Um, so Modley, uh, we had this whole crazy thing where first Captain Crozier, the commanding officer of the Teddy Roosevelt, um, was removed, was relieved of duty um, because a letter he sent was made public. Then Modley gives this fairly unhinged speech over the one MC to the crew. It's pretty of the unhinged. Star. If you go to task and purpose and either listen to the whole thing or just read some of the highlights, you know he all the attention's being paid to the to the the line that you're about to give on Crozier. There's you know. It was it was it was a messed up speech. You can't believe he did it. I have another episode title. This episode is naive and stupid, Ooh, or, or or it's not. <laughs> okay, so 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 the the um so so Modley says that Crozier was naive and stupid, um, mind you, in trying to protect his crew, right? And that he was naive and stupid because he didn't anticipate that when he sent this email to all these people, someone would leak it to the press. Um, Modley says all of this over the 1MC to thousands of crew members, at least one of whom was recording the whole thing, right? So naive and stupid to say something in a context in which there's a good chance it's gonna leak to the press. He says this in a context in which there's a good chance it's gonna leak to the press. <laughs> and he, and he, goes on to, he goes on to criticize the crew yep. directly to their faces. Wait, and that, but then he says, and then, the, and then he says, and the media is out to, you know, divide and, and embarrass us, you know, yada, yada, yada. So anyway, that was bad enough. Like that was Monday. And then there was the, the response. I mean, I, I think that in a, in a, in a, like a public communications class, like this episode could be like everything not to do, right? So first there's Crisis the initial, first there's the initial Michigas. Then he doubles down on it yesterday morning right? And says, you know, I meant what I said. I meant every word of it, blah, 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 blah. He gets into a tiff with Teddy Roosevelt's grandson. <laughs> don't mess with Tweed Roosevelt. Don't, don't, mess, with Tweed Roosevelt. don't, don't mess with Tweed. Um, right? Um, oh my gosh. No, it's, um, just, it's, it's absolutely hilarious. It's, it's, the, it's, something's such a clown but, show. But then he, but then he turns around. So then he tries to undouble down and says, of course, I didn't mean that Captain Crozier was naive and stupid. He's the opposite of naive and stupid. And it's like, okay. Um, At least stick to your guns. I, that's right. I, like, like, once you're all the way in the trench, like, just keep digging. I mean, like, you know, come on. Um, <laughs> anyway, so I was, I, I'm sure you were shocked when news came late yesterday afternoon that he had resigned. 
Man, don't mess with the Navy, you know? Uh, except that we keep messing with the Navy. Um, th- which, and and just, yeah. just to be narcissistic for a second, of course, this personally affects me because I'm in the middle of, you know, the Larrabee case where the defendant is the Secretary of the Navy. Um, you having to change your caption? We keep having to change the caption. So now it's, now it's Larrabee versus McPherson because uh, what the, the uh, what, um, Admiral McPherson, who had just been confirmed as the Undersecretary of the Army, has right. now been named as the Acting Secretary of the Navy. Um, By the way, I'm curious, maybe you know this, certainly some listeners will know this. Is it not weird for a retired, for a Navy man to be in the civilian leadership of the Army? Maybe that sort of thing happens all the time, and that's just the joint force and purple and all that. I don't think it happens. I don't don't think it happens all the time. I think it happens more than you might think, especially at lower levels. I mean, so, you know, just to take one example, um, you know, my dear friend Brian Miser, um, right, who's a, a very active defense lawyer in the military. He's what he's now learned counsel and now Nashiri, among other things. So he's a captain in the Navy, but his no, civilian. He's, he's, he's a service member. I'm talking about like people who are doing. Well, I'm saying, no, but what I'm saying is, right, so, so McDonald was a Navy admiral and then he retired and went to become. And so what, this is what I'm saying. Like, I think folks retire from one branch and often take up civilian positions yeah. in, the, in another. So that, that, that would make sense. And I don't think it's a bad thing because it probably brings a breath of fresh air from time to time. It still seems weird, but in any event. It's okay, military, so Bobby. I feel like we All skipped right. Jefferson. You want to talk about the Fifth Circuit abortion so just, decision. So just really quickly. So, so um, you know, this is not, we, we tend not to get into the sort of the, the hot button social issues on the podcast, um, mostly because I at least am not remotely qualified to talk about them. Um, but the, you know, the Fifth Circuit decision uh, yesterday afternoon in the Texas abortion case, I think is actually a harbinger of a broader debate that courts are about to really start having. And I think this also gets into a question that Jake put on the chat. Um, in a nutshell, right, the uh, Texas um, has, like most states, has banned uh, non-essential medical procedures for the duration of the public health crisis. Um, and the justification for banning non-essential procedures, of course, is to free up resources, to minimize the strain that we're placing on hospitals and surgical centers, et cetera. Um, the Attorney General of Texas had uh, issued an opinion interpreting non-essential to include most abortions. Um, never mind, I think, the fairly obvious fact that abortions are uniquely time-sensitive even when they're elective. Right? That is to say that even when they're not medically necessary for the health of the pregnant woman, um, you can't exactly put them off, especially in states like Texas that make it very, very hard, if not impossible, to obtain a legal abortion after viability. Um, so this, of course, produced, a, produced and provoked a lawsuit. Um, last Monday, Bobby, Judge Yackel here in Austin had issued a TRO against the abortions piece of the rule, basically saying, um, putting on hold that part of the non-essential medical procedure ban that extended to abortions. Um, the Fifth Circuit issued an administrative stay last Tuesday, and then yesterday issued a published opinion granting a writ of mandamus and vacating the TRO. Um, And the part that I really want to harp on, it's a divided opinion, and it's Judge Duncan who writes for the majority. And what Judge Duncan really harps upon is that it's not um, a case about Casey, right? Uh, Planned Parenthood versus Casey. Casey does not provide the appropriate doctrinal framework for analyzing the Texas abortion rule because it's a public health crisis. And instead, Duncan says, we have to look to Jacobson versus Massachusetts, the 1905 Supreme Court decision about quarantines um, for the standard of review. And Bobby, I think it's safe to say Jacobson is an incredibly deferential, you know, basically rational basis-ish 
standard of review, where as long as the government is acting reasonably during a health crisis, um, it's allowed to infringe upon constitutionally protected liberties, notwithstanding other arguments that might be used in defense of those protections. So Jacobson, 1905, contemporaneous with Lochner. Um, and so that muddies the issue of how do we treat Jacobson's uh, use of the word reasonable and all its reasonableness language? Because as, as all you Penn Law students and other listeners who've taken common law know, um, the language that we in the, the modern era are associate, used to associating with rational basis review, some of that same terminology showed up and was used often in Lochner style review, which was not deferential at all. Um, so there's some muddiness to what to make of the calibration language that shows up back in Jacobson. But at, at bottom, Jacobson is not surprisingly at all a, a full-throated defense of the authority of states in the exercise of their police power to compel vaccinations, to control against um, you know, threats of epidemics, you know, very similar situation in that respect. Uh, and, and that's where the state's power is at its zenith. And yes, it of course is invading um, liberty over your body to compel you to have a vaccination. And so there's a, there's a countervailing right that has to give way in that setting. My sort of sense of it is the right way, this, you have to translate Jacobson into modern doctrinal terms to speak of it with sense. You can't just sort of take its words and say in sort of an ahistorical way, treat it as, as just calling for displacement of all other doctrinal frameworks for all of the rights, and you just ask, is there a rational basis for what the state did? Therefore, they can do whatever they want. Um, quite the contrary. The right way to think about it is you apply the relevant framework. If it's a speech constraint, if, if somebody is silenced for going around, uh, let's say the state of Texas has a rule saying that uh, it shall be a, you know, it's going to some way or fashion be a crime to speak against shelter in place. Why? Because we need people to shelter in place to save lives. Are you telling me it's just rational basis review and we don't apply any First Amendment law? Right. I think it's ridiculous. I don't think Jacobson points that direction at all. What Jacobson tells us is, in modern terms, that the state's interest is compelling and it's at its zenith and therefore has a good chance of surviving even strict scrutiny, but you still got to do the work. So this is so so this is exactly the argument that Lindsay. So um, my former colleague at American, Lindsay Wiley, who if you guys aren't already following on Twitter, you should. Um, I think it's is, is it at Lindsay F. Wiley. Let me find out. Let me find what her handle is. Anyway, so Lindsay Wiley and I are in the middle of writing a paper um, that's going to be published in I think the Harvard Law Review Forum over the summer, um, making exactly this point, Bobby, that basically um, it makes sense, right, as Jacobson suggests, to be thinking about. Um, the government's interests in this context in a different way, that the government might have a compelling interest during a public health crisis that we wouldn't think it had during ordinary times, but that this whole sort of notion that we just suspend normal judicial review because it's a public health emergency really is not just hard to defend the more you unpack it, but is actually affirmatively dangerous. Um, and we're actually going to have a blog post up about this, I think, later this week on the Harvard Law Review blog that sort of marks out some of the arguments we're making in the paper. Um, Lindsay is at Prof L. Widely on Twitter. You should totally follow her because um, she actually knows what she's talking about, unlike me. Um, but I, the reason why I find this interesting, Bobby, and this goes to a question Cassandra just posted on the chat, um, is because I think it's probably likely that at some point in one of these cases, yes, the Supreme Court's going to have to decide all of these post-Jacobson doctrinal innovations, right? Modern tiers of scrutiny, 
um, modern strict scrutiny for implied fundamental rights, right? Like the, you know, the Casey abortion framework. Um, are these really all subservient to Jacobson or can they, be, can they and must they be reconciled along the lines you're describing? I don't think it'll be this case. I mean, I think, you know, the last the Supreme Court's going to see of this case is whether it grants or denies a stay um, of the Fifth Circuit's decision. Um, and if I were a betting man, I'd, I'd put money on deny, um, right? But I think there's going to be a case that comes along eventually, if the Supreme Court ever hears cases again, um, where the court's going to have to say something about how Jacobson maps onto or doesn't map onto all, you know, the 115 years of subsequent Supreme Court doctrine creating much more detailed, comprehensive, and in most cases, rigorous um, forms of judicial scrutiny. And uh, this could be an abortion case when that happens, if it happens. It could be a free exercise case. It could be a Second Amendment case. It could be a right to vote case. Be a right uh, to travel it, case. Be a right to travel case, exactly. Yep. So um, it, it, this is not a question that is abortion specific in any way. This is a question about whether the entirety of all of currently applicable doctrine that explains how rights work gets turned off in the face of a public health emergency or if instead as i would have it the public health emergency ensures that the government has a really good chance of winning but you still got to go through the analysis um all right did we cover pandemia and Trumplandia? I think we did. I think we're through most of it. Yeah. Do you want to say a little bit? Do you want to say anything about the FISA court decision? Yeah, I want to, I want to, this is pretty quick. So last week's episode, we unpacked uh, what I think of as Horowitz report part two. Part one was the, uh, the Carter page report that made such headlines. Um, part two is about the uh, subsequent review that the inspector general's office has begun in which they're combing through other FISA case files on a sort of a, a selective basis to get a sense of how widespread is it within FBI practice that there are problems with failing to uh, convey to the courts all relevant impeachment or exculpatory information about the target in relation to the showing that they might be an agent of a foreign power for the FISA Title I application. Um, and this was a first fruit of that effort, an initial review of 29 case files, specifically a review of the Woods file, which is the part of the record within the FBI bureaucratic process in which all the facts asserted in the, uh, in the agent's declaration, facts that tend to show or support the government's belief that the person is a proper target for a Title I electronic surveillance order, um, what's the basis? What was the background? In the Woods file, in, in a perfect case, more or less for all the facts asserted there would have some kind of account. It's like the footnotes in a Larvie article as Stuart Baker and others said on their podcast earlier this week, the Steptoe Cyberlaw podcast. Um, it would all be sort of documented there. And Horowitz found, and we talked about last week how he documented all 29 files. There were four that were missing, were missing. Some maybe never existed. And then of the other 25, there were, the Woods file was clearly incomplete in certain respects. This did not mean that anything false or unsubstantiated was said to the FISA court. It means the Woods file was incomplete. It's possible that had it been complete, it would have been documented fully all the way through for everything said there. But of course, it opens the possibility, and it certainly is a bit of a red flag in that respect. So we noted last week that we can't wait to hear more from what the inspector general discovers. It turns out it may not have to wait, or at least the FISA court doesn't have to wait. In an order uh, styled 
in-rate accuracy concerns regarding FBI matters submitted to the FISC. Judge Bosberg of the FISC has ordered the FBI to identify these 29 cases ASAP and begin immediately determining whether there is something that went to the FISC that was omitted, that was misrepresented, basically um, following up and doing that next step analysis. And critically, uh, this has to be done by June 15th, and it has to be done on a rolling basis across all cases, if I understand this right, every two months from then on. So the FISC looks pissed. Last week, Steve, you, you talked about various procedural oversight type safeguards you would like to see enacted to police against this sort of um, insufficient process. In other words, a situation where maybe the rules are good enough, but they're not being complied with enough. Well, it turns out the FIS isn't going to wait for legislation. They're just going to demand it. And uh, so I think you're going to get even more, uh, perhaps, attention going forward than you might have hoped for. Listen, I, I, paragraph four of the order, which I've put up on, on the screen for folks who, who want to see it. Um, I just want to, let me zoom out so you can see all paragraph four because it runs over the page break. Um, I think paragraph four is a really positive development. I would just love to see it legislated. Um, and, and, and I would love for Congress to actually have a, a serious conversation about putting more teeth into the FISA process along the lines we discussed last week that isn't just, you know, let the FISA court police itself. Because um, there are reasons, you know, paragraph four is a good start, Bobby. I don't think, it, I don't think it's, by, it's by any stretch the end. Um, it's definitely, so keep watching this space. We'll keep tabs on it. Uh, I promised a real quick note on the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act decision. Let me, let me give that note. Uh, Sandig versus Barr is an ACLU litigation that's raising an issue that has consumed attention for those of us who follow the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act forever. One of the many different provisions within the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act is, and perhaps the most sweeping or generally applicable one, is the one that makes it a felony to uh, take information from a protected computer, which by the way, basically means any computer connected to the internet. So you take information out of computer based on unauthorized or excessive access. Well, unauthorized access, everyone agrees, at least encompasses a situation where someone overcomes technical constraints that were meant to keep them out. In other words, you know, hacking in, in layman's terms. Um, but what about unauthorized in more of a principal agent uh, sort of sense, or the same sense in which you think about if you go into a restaurant, you, you know you're in, you have authority to walk into an open restaurant and sit down at a table, uh, but you also know that your authority granted by the, the property owner doesn't extend to going into the back office and poking around there or in the kitchen. Is the same thing true in the computer space? That is, uh, if you were permitted to access a website, for example, but the website has terms of service that the owner of the site sets forth what they are inviting you to do and what you're not invited to do on their site. Um, does that get built into the authority that the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act makes subject to both tort action, in effect, or civil action, and potential criminal prosecution? So the ACLU sued for a pre-enforcement interpretation, and, uh, and Judge Bates gave him one and said, yeah, no, that, that's ridiculous. Terms of service can't be part of the criminal sanction here. This is about circumvention of constraints, not disobedience to the owner's rules of the road. Um, it's not a Supreme Court decision, but Judge Bates is, is a much followed judge and this is a much followed litigation. So that, that's in line with the general trends, but it's a big deal and it further solidifies the general trends. Um, guys, uh, so Naomi has a question on the chat that I think we should, we should hit really quickly before turning to frivolity. Is that okay? Yeah, and we should invite also, since we said we would formally invite Q&A, people start hitting this up in the chat if you have questions. We'll start with Naomi's. 
So uh, she asks, uh, looking more to the potential pandemic responses through a national security lens, as we were seeing in some areas like DOJ designed to prosecute intentional infection as domestic terrorism. Is the language used in statutes authorizing surveillance, et cetera, amenable to framing a virus as a threat in a way that these tools could be engaged without modifying the statutes? So obviously, Bobby, it's statute specific, um, but FISA at least, right, requires a person, um, right? Well, so the idea would be that you won't be able to show, unless you indulge a conspiracy theory about somebody being behind the virus, right. um, public no, health- no, no serious official would ever do that. <laughs> um, uh, I, no, I do no, believe- no, no U.S. Senator from Arkansas would ever do that. I don't, I don't know what might happen there, but it sounds interesting. I will say this. I, if we are asking whether there's a way to use foreign intelligence surveillance authorities on the basis of a claim that there's somebody actually trying to kill Americans, et cetera, using it as a bioweapon. Um, I mean, in theory, yes, but I think, I think you'd have a hard time making the factual showing there. Um, but, and, without that, but without that hook, I don't even think you could get there. Like, like, well, but, but, so just broaden the scope and say, no, it's not about that. Right. We're concerned about um, what is, I, I certainly agree, is a, a conscious effort by the government in Beijing to try to spread misinformation, to try to spread blame, but not just to confound and confuse the United States, but to put blame on the United States. There, there are people in China who believe that the U.S. Army used a bioweapon and this is what happened. There's been some weak recent attempts by Beijing to walk back what government officials, including uh, foreign ministry officials, had said explicitly endorsing these sorts of theories. Um, I think there, yeah, you've got foreign intelligence activity. If there's somebody in some fashion within the United States or otherwise within the, the notional scope of Pfizer protections, whom the government wants to surveil as part of the effort to respond to that sort of thing, or otherwise trying to monitor what the Chinese government, even if we take away that sort of pernicious stuff and just think of general intentions, capabilities, and motivations of the, of the Chinese uh, posture on these issues, then from a traditional foreign intelligence gathering perspective, absolutely, you can spy on them. Uh, but if we're thinking instead about the, the, the questions scenario in which there's some person who's got COVID-19 and they, they go around and, and, and horrifically try to infect others, um, the international origins of, the, of the, the virus wouldn't enable you to bring any of the foreign intelligence apparatus. Um, it's an interesting question whether laws involving assault or battery or other use of a deadly weapon. I do believe there's been talk of at least some instances at the state level of charges being brought against people who either said they were sick and coughed onto somebody to scare them or to harm them, or maybe even worse sick. Um, and that's sort of in the same category as using your car as a deadly weapon. I don't know how much prior instances we have of intentional infection as a weapon, but I don't doubt that you could reach some of that with ordinary state criminal law. Federal terrorism related statutes, um, are few are, are really not there for domestic terrorism. There's more generic crime, uh, federal crime statutes you could use that would map on very well to an infection scenario because they involve things like uh, explosives. Um, if you had a foreign element to it, that would maybe get you something, but it'd be hard to bring any federal terrorism law to bear. I think that's right. Um, yeah. All right, um, should we go back to a world where there are privacy laws? <laughs> uh, yeah, so at this point, we're going to pivot to frivolity segment if you're... Uh, but, please, but please keep sending questions on the chat, whether they are serious yeah. or frivolous. Uh, ask, any, ask us anything. But if you don't want Westworld spoilers for episode four, now's the time to sign off. Thanks for listening. Um, 
uh, Mother of All Exiles was a pretty good episode. <laughs> there goes some. Um, Mother of All Exiles was pretty good. What did, you were thumbs up? I, I called it. I even, I, I even got some credit on Twitter for this. Um, so they revealed who, who the other hosts were. And, and it's, it's uh, so here's the big spoiler. So guys, jump off now if you, if you really don't want to know, um, right? The, the, other, the other hosts are Dolores, 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 and Dolores, and one TBD. Yeah, yeah, right. So that's super interesting. Is it because... It'll be exciting to see which host body they put it put it into, or is it possible that there, you know, is Teddy out there somewhere? Is her father out there somewhere? I don't think she cares enough about anyone else, probably, to have done it. I, I just want to say I feel I feel good for saying that at least one of them was also Dolores. I, I think I said Charlotte was Dolores last week. Yeah, I know that was impressive. That was pretty cool. Um, so uh, William's back, and he's haunted. Do you in, how do you interpret that? That. I don't know. He's, I, I don't, he's gone psychotic because he killed his daughter, or is the, there some sort of... I don't know. The man in black plot line is the one part of this episode that I really... I mean, I got what they were trying to do, but I'm still not sure what we're supposed to take away from it. I thought it didn't make sense that Charlotte had to spend all that time with him, only to then just announce, like, yeah, I've decided to have you civilly committed, and you can't do shit about it. Um, it felt like what they wanted instead was to give us a check-in with Ed Harris, and Ed Harris is amazing, and the character's great, and they wanted to show this sort of it, it was sort of fan servicey and sort of spin the wheels with an enjoyable character, but it didn't actually serve the plot at all because they could have done all that. He obviously had lost his mind. The idea that you need to get him to clean up. I mean, did he actually put his finger on or do anything that Charlotte slash Dolores needed him to do? No, although I think his involuntary commitment means she now has his, she now. No, I got that. But like the case for involuntary committing him was way stronger before she got him all cleaned up and talking sense. He was losing his mind when she showed up. So clearly she didn't need to spend any time with him. She could have just had him committed. Yeah. So, I mean, right. So, so, uh, so wait, so, so Alicia, uh, Alicia has uh, put, so Dolores is Dolores. Charlotte is Dolores. Runnels is Dolores. And now we know Musashi. And I want to talk about Musashi yeah, is awesome. Dolores, right? I think there are six, well, not counting Maeve, right? And not counting, so, so let's, let's just back this up. Bernard is Bernard. No, but Dolores, Charlotte left Westworld, right? With Dolores's pearl in her head and with five more, yeah. right? And so there are six pearls for which Charlotte's responsible, plus Maeve, plus Stubbs, because they were both, Charlotte didn't take either of them out of Westworld. Right. Right. So of the six pearls Charlotte was responsible for, we now know that four of them, right, are Charlotte. And we're pretty sure one of them is Bernard. Right. And then there's a right, sixth right, one. Right. That's right. She, right. she turned Bernard loose out there. Right. To, uh, and to, to, the whole psychodrama. Trying to stop her. To check herself. Was that like some... I don't know. Although, although the 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 Stub Charlotte fight, uh, the Stubbs Dolores fight was pretty cool. Yeah, um, that was pretty great. I was assuming that would be more of like the final episode, but. Uh, so can we talk about Musashi? Yeah, yeah. Okay, so here's my question about Musashi: Is this why we were subjected to two random ass episodes during season two of Shogun World? Like, is this- The, the Shogun World subplot was terrible. It, it was so, I, I didn't enjoy it. Just, I wanted just, to enjoy it. Just tell me it was for something other than setting up this dramatic reveal at the end of episode four of season three. Because I feel like, you know, first of all, that reveal makes no sense without those, that plot element from season two. Right, like it's it's like. By the way, we're finally explaining what the hell we were doing. Right? Yeah, that it, it's 
it makes it vaguely more interesting, right? But they just they didn't do very well with that subplot before, so it, there's no sense of ah, yeah, thank God he's back. Is what a great character that whole. So, plot so I, I have I have two more questions about Musashi. One, what the heck is he doing with android fluid in all of those keg barrels? I right? agree. Like, but that that wasn't milk that leaked out of there. No, that was that, that wasn't milk. Um, and then, uh, ooh, that would be a good episode title too. This podcast wasn't milk. Um, well, does it? So, do, isn't the inference that he's using Yakuza resources, or Dolores is using Yakuza to either at least acquire the beginnings, if not actually acting on a plan to make a lot more hosts? Well, that that that's that's what I take it to be, right? That 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 the that where they were was a Yakuza factory. Um, and indeed, I someone. Um, Shoot, some I read somewhere that the name of the factory where they were actually, if you if you knew if you know Japanese and and I don't know nearly enough Japanese, actually translated to 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 a point to to sort of drive home the point. But anyway, um, second point about Musashi, um, leaving the pearl in Maeve's head, like the whole point of the exercise was to take Maeve off the table. All you've done is kill her body. You left the pearl yeah, in her head. Right. Well, so I feel like that was plot determined and so they they're like well obviously he would try and then oh hey uh Ciroc's guys are out front with guns i guess we can't stay around so i guess what we'll fight maybe again another day but that was pretty weak right i mean so first he of has all a, he, has a katana. He, has a, he has a katana he could cut just, her head off yeah and then run off with it yep he doesn't and and plot requires that he not do it all right well but okay aren't you still hooked though Oh, super. Uh, some other observations. So, yeah. first of all, how did Bernard and Stubbs get so quickly to the United States? Uh, plot. Uh, plot. Uh, uh, they, they, flew, they traveled they, by map? They, they, flew, <laughs> <laughs> they, they flew. They flew they, they flew. on one of Daenerys' dragons. Yeah. <laughs> you know, actually, <laughs> how great would that be? Um, uh, no. They, I get, so, we just kind of get blown past that. Bernard's back in the USA in Victorville, which... They make a big point of showing you a lot of space traffic coming in and going out. Um, I don't know if that's just sort of sp- supposed to be sort of like, hey, isn't it fun to look at the future? Yeah. Um, Bye-bye, Paris. So that was interesting. So they're, they're setting up for next week. We're going to get the Ciroc backstory. We're going to find out the Rehob- the Rehoboam is needed because here's how stupid mankind have gotten. Um, so, so stupid that someone nuked Paris. Right. I thought that was actually really well done. In the moment, the moment she said, you know, she – she made the Paris reference, and he starts saying like, "Oh, I wish." You knew there was going to be something like that. Well, in the in one of the 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 trailers, right? There was a thermonuclear incident, Paris, twenty twenty eight, or whatever. Yeah. Oh shoot! I didn't yeah. know. That. They, they they had, but but you didn't know if thermonuclear incident meant like you know small incident or like by Paris. Yeah. By the way, they've they've gradually converted Stubbs into comic relief. Yes. In a subtle way, and yes. I'm there for that. Uh, Hope he's not entirely dead on the floor of that uh, sex slave auction. No, no, of course he's not dead. Because if he were dead, they would have showed him. Yeah. Right. But the the line the line where Dolores says, uh, uh, you know, uh, d- you know, d- don't take this personally, right? <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I like he had a great line earlier, right when he and Bernard first show up in Victorville, and he says, you know, there's some reference about the parks, and he's like, blah blah blah, murder simulation theme park, and uh, just the that that basically sums it up, right? Yeah. Stubbs is uh, the comic relief. So I like it when Cal Dolores takes Cal shopping. He has a pretty woman kind of scene where he's he's trying on all the the outfits he's not used to. I want to go shopping at Friston. That place looks awesome. Um, the uh, you just need to hope I'm to say that you're fancy enough to do it. Exactly. Hey, I wonder what he would say. It's um, like it's like the Black Mirror episode. You need a score of at least four point two. 
or, or like life in social credit, uh, probably not too long from now in China. Um, Cal, Cal's stuff and his movement about and Dolores movement about has highlighted something that I think the show just has to pretend wouldn't be there, but it's not plausibly not there. And that is ubiquitous biometrics of the observable kind. Yep. So they have a lot of biometrics used for gene markings and blood markers and all the rest. And they occasionally flirt with some, some iris stuff. But the reality is uh, if Rehoboam is doing what it's supposed to be able to do, there would be complete wiring in of air. There'd be cameras everywhere, sensors everywhere. They'd be vastly 30 years beyond whatever we've already got. Cal and Dolores couldn't move around in China today without being detected. Probably couldn't move around in London today without being detected, but they're moving all over the place without looking any different, without going through a minority report, uh, Tom Cruise style eyeball transplant or anything like that. And then they, right after I thought that, then they do sort of the temporary blood infusion so they can go in the bank and rip off um, what's his face's fortune. Um, and, and that would never have happened if they just did an ID check and said, kind of look at your old fashioned picture on your ID. And hey, you don't look at the picture of the dude on file, who by the way is a super famous dude. So I don't know, I think they just had to ignore biometrics and visual identification because otherwise you, you just couldn't get the plot going. Right? I, Bobby, maybe in the future, you know, faces are easier to fake. Faith faces are easier to fake than blood. They should have done, they should have gone that route if they could have. That, that is like Mission Impossible to have a mask machine. Exactly. Voila. <laughs> um, let's see. Is there anything else worth saying there? Any final thoughts about it? I just, I just, I, you know, I didn't, so I did not love this episode because I thought it had a couple of sort of weird points in it, but I still am so into the season. Like, and I realize that that's because I'm a simpleton and that they're, they're dumbing it down for, for yokels like me, but I'm, I'm all, I'm all here for it. I think they've made a conscious choice to make the plot more followable, which I appreciate. Uh, I'll tell you what I also appreciate are the, the uh, nine or 10 folks from the session who stayed in for this ridiculous Westworld talk when what you came for was national security law talk, or, may, or maybe it was the other way around. I guess we'll never know. But why would, um, you know, if folks have any more questions they want to ask, if you want to, you know, um, I don't know, throw them in the chat box or, I guess, raise your hand, right? Is that the... the... Yeah, we could treat this like class. We'll see you if you raise your hand. Or we could just keep talking. What, what do you think about this plan for baseball to restart in Arizona and everyone gets quarantined? Um, I think that for the, uh, the players, the players who are maybe paid less is probably more attractive than for the players who are the big stars who are not going to like doing this. Um, but I'd really love it. I, I would love <laughs> nothing more than to have uh, opening day yankees versus dodgers or something and i don't care if there's no crowd noise hell simulate the crowd noise i wouldn't mind um it'd be pretty great um all right, we, we have one last question one last question on the chat is the 9-11 trial still pending in the westworld timeline um, that could be the show title frank that is a great question frank um, just won the show i mean you know if the defendants are still alive in 2058 there's no reason not under current law to suspect that the trial wouldn't be over um so, you know, Frank for the win. Frank for the win. Hey, I will close. I got a really random one. You'll, you'll be horrified or enjoy this. I'm going I'm to sing a little bit because I was, I was talking with uh, show listener Amanda Ariaga, who's at Texas DPS, but also the Austin Young Lawyers Association. And she was telling me how they do a, a law parody, just like the law school, you know, does. Um, this is uh, the executive committee of Bar and Grill, the annual Young Lawyers Association, you know, comedy musical. Their 2019 show was Law Miserable, which is wonderful. 
Um, and so I asked like, well, can you give me some lyrics? What were some of the things that were, that were sung? And she said, well, it's for lovely ladies, yeah. you know the song, yeah. um, contract lawyers. So are you ready for a taste? Must I? <laughs> yes, you must. Contract lawyers, hire one or two. Got a big production, we will do your doc review. Long job, short job, any length, my dear. We read really slowly, so your job could take a year. Quick and cheap, but hardly a career. <laughs> That's pretty great. That's pretty good. I, 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 although I'm still with the British family that did that redid one day more. Oh, that was that was amazing. Yes, that was and amazing, but also like I'd really like to see the outtakes because I kind of kind of pictured the dad being like, "No, no, no, you're off key. You're there's, there's no way that was the first take." Had, no, I mentioned this earlier. Have you seen the John Krasinski? Uh, yes. Good News show. Yes, yes. Yes. That's pretty wonderful as it is. I love this whole thing where these home productions are taking place. The difference between Hollywood and uh, the National Screen Lab podcast and production value has has decreased. Okay. <laughs> well, now, now, now that you're on that note, I think it's time for us to, to stop while we're behind. So, yes, it is. Um, for those of you guys, um, you know, for those of you guys who stuck around at the end, thank you. For those who didn't, thank you anyway. Uh, Bobby is at Bobby Chesney. I am at Steve underscore Vladek. We are at NSL Podcast. Um, and it was a real treat to get to spend some remote time with uh, the Penn crowd today. The, the, the school momentarily, but no longer known as Carrie Law. Um, <laughs> And on that, well, that's right. So uh, everybody stay safe out there. Um, and I'm going to stop the recording now. Adios.